2: Jared is going to win the Daytona 500.
1: Nobody was talking. It was all in my hands as to what I needed to do.
2: Wallace spins.
0: Wallace's car
2: goes on its nose.
0: It went in the air, hit the ground, then flew back up,
1: and I flew over the start-finish line. The Motor Racing Network presents the 1993 season, 25 years later.
3: Mark Martin riding an unbelievable winning streak. I didn't realize when I won it because we were on such a roll. It was 10 years, or 15 probably, before I realized that I had won the Southern 500.
2: The race winner, Rusty Wallace, and the championship driver, Dale Earnhardt, each carrying flags honoring their fallen friends, Alan Kulwicki and Davey Allison.
0: Davey and Alan Kulwicki were on everybody's mind all year long, right to the very end. And we always had those flags in our truck.
1: From the Motor Racing Network studios in Concord, North Carolina, here is your host, Susie Armstrong.
4: Thank you for joining us on MRN Presents the 1993 season, 25 years later. With the summer drawing to a close, the Cup Series returned to the short tracks for a second time in 93, starting with Richmond International Raceway. Bill Davis Racing's rookie driver, Bobby Labonte, scored his first pull that weekend for the Miller Genuine Draft 400.
5: That was huge. I mean, we had a brand-new Laughlin car, low snout, inch-and-a-half drop snout, or it might have been three-quarter drop snout. And, you know, I'd already raced those in the Bush Grand National Days, and it turns better in the center of the corner. And, I mean, you know, kind of had the feel for it and all that. And we didn't have the cars that we needed to have to go for me to turn, you know, for my my style. And uh, so we took it up there, and I, I knew I knew qualifying it was going to be good, but also knew in 30 laps it wasn't going to be good. So, you know, we had a chance to win the pole, and my, my favorite story about that – is Ernie Irvin qualified second, you know, and we knew that we were a shot for winning the poll because back in the day there was no timing and scoring, it was stopwatches and people looking at your car at looking at cars. So I go out there to make my qualifying run, and I come off turn two, and I don't pay no attention at the time, but I remember seeing this later and I, I didn't think about it. But Robert Yates was owned Ernie's at that time and he was in the infield when it was back in the day it was dirt. And I think he was doing donuts in the infield because he was trying to raise up some dirt, you know, and to get like my You know, if he could get me to like flinch for a second, or not a second, but a a tenth of a second, you know, and like, okay, what, what was that? Then Ernie would win the poll. So I was like, so Ernie told me that. I mean, I, I think it's true because I remember being something going on over there like, well, what was that?
4: The top storyline going into the weekend was Mark Martin's winning streak. Four victories in the Cup Series and three straight trips to the winner's circle in the NASCAR Xfinity Series. Martin and his Roush Racing team were feeling the pressure to keep the trend alive, but not from within.
6: And Alan Bestwick hit it right on the head when he came on the air. Can Mark Martin stretch that incredible winning streak to five straight wins? What- Well, in practice and qualifying, he certainly showed no signs of any weakness there. And as far as being mentally prepared, he's on top of his game right now.
3: We won four in a row, seven if you counted the Xfinity races, and we were feeling pressure from NASCAR. And stick up the show. What that meant was just look out, get your wings clipped if you don't watch it. You know, because it didn't matter. It didn't matter if you had an advantage or not. You get your wings clipped if you won too much. You know, if you dominated too much, things can get tougher or there can be a new rule or whatever. And so I led that race so easy that I ran half throttle. I'd I'd pull out to straightaway lead and just, I mean, it was pitiful. We were so much faster than everybody in the middle of the race. It was it was idiotic.
6: Speaking of great runs, Mark Martin's got another good one going. Here he comes off turn number four. Doesn't bury that line. He has clear sailing right now. There's only one car directly ahead and that is the car of Morgan Shepard more than a hundred laps behind. So it's almost a half away around the racetrack before he'll catch anybody other than Shepard. So he can really put some daylight on the field if he wants to hang it all out right now. And I got a feeling he does.
3: But later on, you know, into the night, and I couldn't even tell you why, but we weren't dominant. Uh, we really didn't fight anything with the car balance-wise or anything, but we obviously got didn't you know we, the lead got away from us for whatever reason, and we weren't able to win the race. But it looked like halfway through that we were going to win it. You know, I'd I'd see if it had gone green for the last 200 laps straight, we'd have won easy. But for some reason, maybe we wouldn't. Maybe we have lost lost our edge later. But for some reason, we lost our edge.
4: As Martin faded to a sixth-place finish, Rusty Wallace was back in victory lane for his sixth win of the season. White
6: flag, Rusty Wallace with three-quarters of a mile to go.
7: Wallace comes off turn number two for the final time. Bill Elliott behind him by about a car length with the half. Now Earnhardt about four car lengths back. Rusty holds the lead back to turn
6: three. Wallace just trying to keep it to the bottom of the racetrack and protect what he has. He's on his way down to win the Miller 400.
0: That was a big, big race at Richmond that I won. And uh, it started an era for a special car. Uh, In 1993, we built a brand new car to go to Richmond. And we went there and I led a lot of laps. And the caution plague came out for rain, I think it was. We restarted later in the race and i won the race but when i won the race i crossed the start finish line and after i won i went to victory lane obviously and my pr guy tom roberts comes running up to me in victory lane he said hey i got a name for this car i said what is it because he would always help me name the cars we always named our cars back then he said midnight i said midnight why he said, "Because when you crossed the start-finish line, I looked down at my digital watch and I watched it click from 11:59 to 12, and you went right across the line at midnight and won the race. So, don't you think that's a cool name?" He said, "Midnight." And I went, "Awesome!" So that night we named that car Midnight. Midnight went on to be the most famous car I think from that point on in NASCAR. That car won 18 to 20 races. That car, when I used to show up with it at the racetracks, guys used to come up to me, and I'll never forget the day that Dale Earnhardt Sr. walked up and he said, Hey, man, what car you got this week? I said, Midnight. And he goes, Oh, hell. He goes, Oh, no. He was, like, defeated right then. He felt terrible because that car was quick. It was, just had that magic feel. It always handled good. It always performed well. Midnight uh, spent life as a Pontiac. Midlight spent life as a Ford, and Midnight, I think, messed around with being a Dodge for a couple times. But the chassis was what was Midnight originally. So uh, what a great car, and that that car started life at Richmond that day in 93, the second race, with a convincing victory.
4: After the checkers at Richmond, the Cup Series moved on to Dover Downs International Speedway. For Brett Bodine, the weekend started with a trip to the hospital.
7: I got hurt that year, severely. I uh, hit Dover in a a pre-qualifying practice crash. And I sat out Dover. They flew Trickle in to substitute for me. If you notice, Trickle drove the 26 in that race. Uh, I had, uh, going into turn three, had a freeze plug come out of the block and uh, spun in my own water and hit the wall driver's side, kind of a NADU type wreck, driver's side. My head actually hit the wall, cracked my helmet, uh, had uh, two bleeders on the brain. Uh, I spent the weekend in Dover in the hospital, Uh, was flown to Allentown, Pennsylvania, where I was fitted up for what they called an external fixator. I broke my wrist and arm, and they four stainless steel screws or pins screwed into my arm that stuck out through the skin and then they put this external bar on to adjust everything to pull it all back into place and then positively hold it there. No cast. That. This bar replaced the cast, but the pins were locked into this bar. And if you notice, the next week at Martinsville, I ran sixth.
4: Brother Jeff Bodine was also in the headlines, moving from Bud Moore's racing operation to his own team, the newly purchased championship operation, formerly owned by the late
8: Alan Kulwicki. You know, everyone knew I was gonna, I was gonna be in the seven the following year, and we, we all decided, Bud, Travis, Donnie, myself. Uh, and Paul Andrews, you know, let's make the switch now. You know, let's you know, give us time to get used to the seven car, the seven team. Help us to start out the 94 season. And but it will help you with your ne- uh, driver for next year. And so we just all agreed on doing it that way. And. There was no hard feeling, no animosity, of just a mutual agreement to, to make the switch. Then
4: at the end of the Split Fire Spark Plug 500, it was Rusty Wallace in victory lane again for the seventh time on the year. If
0: you're talking seven wins right now, and what's on my mind is Buddy Paree at the beginning of the year saying, "We're going to win ten races." I'm saying you're crazy. And when you win seven races and you got a lot of racing left. There's a good possibility that number 10 can happen.
4: Daryl Waltrip finished a solid third, but the run was far off of team expectations for the season.
1: So 93 was a tough year for us. We did, we weren't real competitive most that year, and um, ran good at like the my, to, I had staple race tracks, you know Martinsville, Bristol, the short tracks, Dover, some of those tracks, and Talladega. Ran pretty good there, but but didn't win a race in 93, which is the first year I hadn't won a race in my whole career. So uh, that was a tough year for us.
4: From Delaware, the teams headed back to Southern Virginia for the Goodies 500 at Martinsville Speedway. On a two-race win streak, Rusty Wallace was ready to make it three in a row and back-to-back on the tight half-mile bullring.
9: Without question, the hottest driver on the Winston Cup Tour. Two consecutive wins, seven overall this year, and four on the short tracks. How about today's race, Rusty? Well, so everything looks good so far. We lost our last practice last night because of the rain.
6: Not a lot of stuff I wanted to try, so I had to take a guess on a couple things, but I, hopefully we guess right, and if not, we will have to work in the car throughout the day and tire pressure adjustments, wedge adjustments, things like that.
9: Is this the same car as you had here in April?
6: Yeah, sure is. The same car I won with in April.
9: How do you handicap the point situation with the last seven tracks coming up between you and Dale Earnhardt? Uh, I have no idea. i tell you the truth.
6: Uh, they're all, all the tracks are all good for me. They're good for Dale, too, so it'll just be a shootout right to the end. In
4: the closing laps, Dale Earnhardt retired to the garage for the second week in a row.
2: Lap 446 and what a change the complexion of the NASCAR Winston Cup point chase has taken here in the last few moments. Last weekend, Rusty Wallace picked up a ton of points on Dale Earnhardt, and he is the position to do so again here today. Wallace running in third. Earnhardt has gone behind the wall with what Winston
8: Kelly tells us is an apparent rear end problem.
4: Earnhardt's crew chief Andy
8: Petrie. We uh, we left there. We went into that race with with a decent cushion. All we needed was a good finish. You know, we didn't have to win, but we needed a good finish. And uh, oh, it was heartbreaking. You know, I remember just you know how how much the, the guy that built the gears and transmissions for us took it really hard I mean it was like you know it was tough.
4: Runner-up Wallace led 61 laps, but no one had anything for Ernie Irvin, who dominated on the paperclip, leading 402 circuits. It was the first win for Robert Yates Racing since Davey Allison's untimely passing in July.
6: Ernie Irvin about to take the white flag. One more lap to go. Just four cars on the lead lap. He gets it. He's off in turn one.
1: Last car he'll deal with is Todd Modine.
2: He flashes by the factory store's Ford. Ernie Irvin sets sail off turn number two and down the backstreet. Right away for the last time. Robert Gates Racing will have their first victory with driver Ernie Irvin at the wheel. The Texaco Haviland Ford through turn number four. The cheers and the waves from the fans. Ernie Irvin wins here at Martinsville. Congratulations, Larry Reynolds. I'm telling you. Boy, it ain't over till it's over here. Well, I felt like
10: we... We're living off of a lot of what we had learned in the spring race when we ran second with Davey had qualified well and it had finished second I I felt like we we started to have good information in our notebook now for Martinsville I wanted to throw the the notes from 91 and 92 away because they were not very fruitful so I felt like going up there that that We had a good chance of running well, and and we qualified, I think, on the outside of the front row. We didn't sit on the pole, almost sat on the pole, and just led that race all day long. But the most unique story about that day, uh, it's a very heartwarming moment. The Allisons, Bobby, Donnie, the entire Allison family, they supported what we did. And they were still a part of this 28 car. But I can't say that they were giving high marks to Ernie Irvin being the driver for the 28 car. You know, Ernie certainly had had some some bumps in the road. You know, uh, wrecking the whole field at Darlington, uh, 91 or 92, when he was 11 or 12 laps down. And then got up in front of the entire uh, community at the driver's meeting I think at Talladega and apologized. So Ernie, there there were some rough edges. Hell of a race car driver, but there I think the facts of life, there were some rough edges. Uh, there's no sense in sticking my head in the sand about that. So we won that race and I can remember it like it was yesterday. We were pitted way down near the end of pit road. That's back when you still had the two pit roads, a front stretch and a back stretch. And we were pitted way down at the end of the exit of the front stretch pits. And that right down in that area, just beyond that, is where Victory Lane was. So Ernie wins a race. I walk out on pit road after he did his cool-down lap, and I see him coming down pit road, and I see somebody walk way out on pit road. And I look closely, and I see a guy give him two thumbs up. And the closer I looked, I went, son of a gun, that's Bobby Allison. And that, that made me feel so good. It's like, okay, they're okay with what's going on. They see this is what this race team needed, with with still racing with tears in her eyes over losing Davey. And then the other thing that happened, very hot that day. It must have been in the low 90s with probably about as much humidity. And Ernie was spent. Uh, you look at a lot of the photos, he's sitting down beside the race car and when he took his uniform top down unannounced to anybody not me not robert not even our pr guy brian vandercook when he took that uniform top down he had a t-shirt that said in memory of davy allison and i said we are okay now we we can we can move on with this whole program now we we, we still miss him we still think about davy allison every day but but We can bring closure to it. The Allisons are okay, and Ernie Irving gets it. He gets it. He's not here to replace Davey Allison. He's just picking up and moving us forward. And uh, to me, though, there was two, aside from winning the race, dominating the race, that was two watershed moments in my book that happened that day
4: from the tight confines of martinsville the tour moved on to another nearby short track north wilkesboro speedway crew chief andy petrie remembers the concern within the richard childress racing organization
8: we leave there with with losing a big chunk of the league and we've got a few races left um i remember i think it was the next week at uh, wilkesboro and we went to, went to Wilkesboro trying to hold Rusty Wallace off. Now, you know, that's not the best place to go to try to hold him off, right? And we were not running well in practice. And so we had – that was another kind of a turning point for Dale and I because I had a way I wanted to – to race the car there he had another way he wanted to and it wasn't working and i was trying to give him what he wanted but it just wasn't working and so he finally relented for happy hour to let me put in what i thought we needed and and to convince him he how he needed to drive it just a little different right (laughs) i can't believe i was telling him how to drive but you know it was something with these low grip racetracks that you just could you just he couldn't use as much throttle as he wanted to so i had to convince him that we couldn't make the car do that and um he finally relented. There again, I mean, he was hard-headed, but he would—he wanted to win, and he wanted to—he wanted to perform too. So he he relented for Happy Hour, and we were really good, and we ended up not winning, but we did finish second to Rusty. And uh, I, I tell people the way I felt after that gear broke at Martinsville, and us trying to hold off Rusty, was like you know we're hanging—I was hanging on a cliff by my fingernails and i can't let go i can't let go. you know you're just barely hanging on and you can't let go and you just gotta do everything you can to try to hold on and that's that's the way it felt
4: driving for billy hagan john andretti made his first cup series start on the tight half mile for the open wheel racing veteran just qualifying for the clash was an accomplishment
9: you know at that time you you had three sets of tires and i burned up all three sets and at wilkesboro there was no way to make it without stickers it seemed like and we worked on the car and got the car better and at that time they didn't start 43 cars either they started 30 with two provisionals and so um our was 32 and two provisionals but it was it was way short of a full field and yet they had 40 some cars participating in all the races so you you had to beat a lot of good guys to make that race and the next day i came in and you know i was um hell-bent that i was going to get in this race whatever it took and unfortunately for me i mean i was able to to pull a lap off i don't know where it came from um ken schrader came over and he actually turned me around and asked me he went to see where that might have come from (laughs) so uh, it was um it was a big lap for me and to get that first race because you know i i never missed a race and I didn't certainly want to miss that one.
4: The tyson Holly Farms 400 got off to a rough start as a seven-car crash unfolded, sweeping
6: up rookie Jeff Gordon. Green flag is in the air, and on the brake, they haul it down to turn number one. Neither driver going to give an inch. Oh, or... trouble
2: here on the main straightaway. Jeff Gordon, Morgan Shepherd. in come the Jeff Bodine cars. Lake Speed is involved, a major pileup here on the main straightaway as the caution flies.
1: And Jeff Gordon is here looking
6: at his uh, DuPont automobile. To finish the Chevrolet, which does not have much left of either the front or back ends, Jeff, you're going to get to not liking this track in a hurry, aren't you?
11: Well, <laughs> not the way my luck's been here this year. This is—I I, just—I can't believe it. I haven't made more than about 10 laps at this track yet in a race. So, you know, we're looking forward to coming back next time just so we can get some, uh, get a race under our belt here. Yeah, well, you know, I, I'm up in the booth now every week with with DW, and, and of course he always reminds me of how he told Rick Hendrick, that kid's never going to make it. He's never going to make it. Tears up that equipment. He's going to cost you a lot of money. Uh, so thank goodness that Rick uh, had had patience with me uh, because, uh, you know, it all turned out pretty good. But, yeah, I, I think if I remember correctly, because we had fast speed and we had a few good results in between, sprinkled in there, that... I, I was more getting the the speech or having the conversations with say Rick Hendrick where it was hey man you just keep keep doing what you're doing bring that car you know back in one piece but you're fast and and you're going to get it. So they they helped build some confidence whether they actually had that or not, helped build confidence in me that you know I was going through a learning curve and, and you know if I just kept improving that we'd be we'd be okay
4: at the end of the day rusty wallace did what he needed to do bringing his team penske pontiac home in first place for the eighth time in 1993
2: rusty wallace comes out of turn four he wins he leads the most laps he's now only 72 points behind dale earnhardt
6: rusty uh four races to go you got another 10 points or so today you're 72 behind you're chipping away at it it all comes down to a little bit of luck i think but uh, what do you think of the last 20 laps of it well, I tell you, it's uh, Dale drove a heck of a good race all day long. Good, strong race. Him and I raced each other real, real hard. Uh, and boy, I tell you, at the start of the race, he was 10th and I was 11th, and we just charged right to the front. I said, "Oh man, here we go. It's going to be a shootout," because uh, I've never seen any championship hunt that the two guys don't go right down to it. And we went to the front. And we were one and two, and he got right on my bumper. I said, "Oh man, he's going to get me," but uh, I was able to just feather the throttle a little bit more and keep those good years hooked up, and it worked out.
4: With four races remaining, NASCAR implemented a new five and five rule to take effect at Charlotte Motor Speedway. Crew Chief Andy Petrie.
8: It was five inches. uh, They raised the the front uh, clearance on the front end to five inches from, I think, three and a half. They lowered the rear spoiler from about six and a half to five inches. So we took a considerable amount of downforce off the car. It was as a test, right? So I don't remember how we ran, but I know Earnhardt. Hated it. I mean, hated it. And it. I think we only ran it once. He got it changed back. Roush Racing's Mark Martin. I liked it, It just the downforce off. So
3: you know, the cars didn't run as fast. They didn't handle as good. And you know, we were didn't make as much downforce, and they. You know, you had to back it up some, and and uh, we were excelling and thriving at the time, and so people assumed and talk was is that it helped me but it didn't but it didn't hurt me because I didn't like cars that stuck you know it, I wanted something you had to drive as it turned out you know Earnhardt did a lot of complaining you couldn't run side by side and you couldn't do this you couldn't do that and they wanted you know they wanted this and they wanted that whatever and it's like dude I can pass you know I can I, you know and you know so that didn't that didn't last forever because Uh, You know, people were starting to whine about arrow push, and they thought if you put more front downforce on them, they wouldn't have an arrow push. Well, it's just dumb. The answer to arrow push is not more front arrow. It's just not, you know. And I was like, nobody ever listened to me, you know. I mean, I did not have Bill French Jr.'s ear and didn't want it. Because if I told him something one time and he didn't listen to it, I wasn't gonna tell him anything ever again. So I didn't. I didn't talk to him. I didn't politic. I didn't do, you know, I just raced. But they were, you know, when they got away from that five and five rule, they went the wrong direction. You don't, I just don't believe that racing is about being easy, you know, and I know we gotta sell it to the fans and we've gotta get new fans and we gotta make it exciting. But it's racing, and I respect the someone who who excels when the rate of difficulty is the greatest. I want to see somebody do stuff that nobody else can do, not see a race where everybody can hold it wide open. I have no interest in that.
4: The 5-5 five and five rule was especially challenging for the Pontiac teams, as Kyle Petty explains.
3: The, this is the era of the aero run amok, where there was no... You couldn't just make an across-the-board rule. It, you had to have a Ford rule. You had to have a Chevy rule. You had to have a Pontiac rule. You had to have a Buick rule. I mean, you had to have different rules, because the cars were so different, so, so different. And when they cut the the spoiler, then... then we didn't lose balance. We lost everything uh, with the Pontiacs, um, and we really went off what Rusty said more than anything else, uh, because they were spending more time in the wind tunnel with the Penske organization with some of their stuff. They they were they were the leaders uh, during that deal. But um, those cars were terrible when they when you took spoiler away from a Pontiac, those cars were bad.
4: Joe Gibbs Racing's Dale Jarrett.
1: It, it totally changed the race car and the way that you had to drive the racetrack. You know the way that you used to attack. Uh, the, the Charlotte Motor Speedway, you, could, you couldn't do that. Uh, you, just, you physically couldn't take your race car and do the things that you'd done. So you kind of had to unlearn everything that you knew and, and try something different. you know It wasn't just the setups that were different. It was what you did as a driver uh, to try to make a difference. And, and we saw people uh, running around on places uh, around the racetrack and doing different things that we had never seen before. And just trying to figure out how you could carry speed and not crash. That was the biggest thing because it was it probably as difficult a race as, as I can remember running. And, you know, a lot of things about the 93 season maybe I can't remember uh, that happened, but you remember the difficulty uh, that, that that created for these race cars. And this was something that NASCAR was looking at doing on a regular basis, and I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, this, you know, I don't know that I, I want to drive these things if they're going to drive that bad.
4: Robert Yates Racing Crew Chief Larry McReynolds met the challenge of
10: the 5-5 five five rule with optimism. Yeah, most people think that NASCAR only plays with arrow changes in today's world of racing, but they moved it around a lot back then. And they were trying something for this fall Charlotte race. It was called the five and five rule. And this is where working for Robert Yates means so much to me even today. Because Robert Yates always pounded on me. Because we'd get these rule changes and I would just lose my mind. I'd go, what are they doing? God, they're out of their mind. They're crazy. This is stupid. This is going to kill us. And Robert Yates would always stop me dead in my tracks and say, Larry, the group or the person that takes change, even though we don't like it, that takes change and looks at it and says, we're going to make this good. That's the person. That's the group that will prevail. And I try to live by that philosophy today. Two and a half, three years ago when Fox came to me and said we're hiring Jeff Gordon, and you're still gonna be part of us, but it's your role is gonna dramatically change. I could have kicked and snorted and raised Kane, but I went down the Robert Yates road. I'm gonna take this change and I'm gonna figure out how to make it good. And I'm gonna I'm on I'm gonna enjoy this change. And that's what we did with that five and five rule with that 28 car. We went out there and it was not a bed of roses. We absolutely worked our guts out. But we made a change in Saturday's practice to the wheelbase, the distance between the front wheels and the rear wheels. And you have adjustments that can move that wheelbase around. And we made an adjustment to the right side wheelbase that brought that thing to life. And I could not wait to get back out there and get that race started because I knew what. He told me he felt, and what the stopwatch was showing, that the only group that could beat us on Sunday would be if we beat ourselves.
4: Race weekend at Charlotte Motor Speedway started on a positive note for rookie driver Jeff Gordon, as the 22-year-old nabbed his first career pole.
11: It, it was great, but if I correct me if I'm wrong, I, I was a little bit disappointed because Bobby Labonte got his first pole before me, and you know we were going for rookie of the year, and so it was sort of this, this. Sort of rivalry. I mean, Bobby and I always got along. Good when we we had one issue that I can think of in Bush Grand National, but you know that year is Kenny Wallace and Bobby Bonnie and myself that were really going full time um, Cup that year and, and going for Rookie of the Year. And so it was a bit of a, a competition among us of who could win our first race, who could win our first pole. And yeah, you know, I, I was excited to get our first pole, but I'll be honest, I thought I was a little disappointed it took until October because. While I may have had some challenges in in the races, the longer races, and not bringing the car back in one piece, qualifying, typically we were pretty competitive.
4: Gordon's crew chief, Ray Everett The 5 and 5, I, I think, helped our cars.
11: Uh, it, whatever the aero balance was or Jeff's driving style, you know, whenever they cut the spoiler off, it seemed like we... We really had an advantage. You know, if you look at, I think, 98, we ran a lot of uh, smaller, spoiler stuff. They tried it both ways, and every time they did, we, we took off, so they had to go back.
4: When the green flew over the Mellow Yellow 500, Robert Yates Racing's Ernie Irvin took off and led all but six circuits in the
10: 334-lap race. That year, it was, it was unbelievable. I mean, it's, you know, obviously, I ran good in the Kodak car all the time. And then getting to the Texaco car, and, you know, obviously went in Martinsville and then went in Charlotte, you know, and that was my, you know, first few races in that car. So um, th- that was really exciting and and knowing that I had a team behind me that that we didn't have to, we, we carried each other. We didn't we didn't really um, struggle on any of those things. We, we were able to, you know, pit stops and. Crew chief and, and driver were all in enmeshing.
4: Irvin's crew chief, Larry McReynolds, recalls
10: the Victory Lane celebration. Saturday, Mark Martin won the Xfinity Series race in the Winn-Dixie car. When I got home that night, Linda had said, did you see what happened today with Victory Lane? I went, no, what happened? She said, they would not let the crew members in, in Victory Lane. It was the driver and his wife, the owner. And the crew chief. They wouldn't let the crew members in. And I said, what was that all about? She said, I have no idea. She says, so what are you going to do if that happens to you guys tomorrow? I said, nah, I'm, I'm not even worried about that. We got 330-something laps and 500 miles before we have to worry about that. Well, lo and behold, we win this race. And sure enough, the car pulls up into victory lane. And the crew, all of us, our wives, girlfriends, kids, everybody, we walk to Victory Lane, and there's all these security guards surrounding Victory Lane with their arms locked, saying nobody can go in except the owner and the crew chief, their wives, and the driver's wife. And there's a gentleman, good friend of mine today by the name of Jim Duncan, used to be with the Speedway. I got a picture hanging at home. Him and I are nose-to-nose. And my conversation with him was short. It's like, Jim... Either all of our crew goes in and celebrates this victory lane, or we're going to go out there on the front stretch, and we're going to celebrate out there, and y'all can stand in here and take all the pictures you want of each other. The whole premise behind it, I guess they were getting heat from Winn-Dixie because it was a Winn-Dixie 300, and Mellow Yellow because it was the Mellow Yellow 500, because so many crew members come out to the race at Charlotte that it, it looked like the Haviland Victory Lane. It didn't look like the Mellow Yellow Victory Lane. Well, the bottom line is when I gave Jim Duncan this ultimatum, and I wasn't going to back down, and Robert was supporting me, we're going to go out there. The fans are really get to enjoy our celebration because we're going to celebrate right out there on the front stretch, or you can let everybody in this Victory Lane. They did let everybody in the Victory Lane, and we did celebrate there as a, as a whole race team.
4: Join us next week as we wrap up our 10-part series, MRN Presents, the 1993 season, 25 years later. Dale Earnhardt was the first guy
11: on the track, and I remember standing on top of the truck and heard Earnhardt shift and going on the back backstretch, you know, like, Rum, bah, bah. he got the turn three, and I think they put what they used to call bear grease, you know, they sealed the track, and the track was slick. Earnhardt spins out backs in the fence and I was like oh my goodness so caution's out and I said hey Jeff now look when you go out be careful because my arm just busted his butt there like he just spun out he wasn't even up to speed and spun out yeah 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 There are 24 leaves of the pit area, down the backstretch,
4: and it looked like a replay of what happened to the three-car. Jeff does the same thing. Until then, I'm Susie Armstrong. Have a great week.
1: Today's program was a presentation of the Motor Racing Network with studios in Concord, North Carolina and Daytona Beach, Florida. The 1993 season, 25 years later, was written and produced by Rich Colbert. Any use of the accounts or descriptions contained in this broadcast must be with the express written permission of NASA car and the motor racing network.